This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Oopsie Jar edition. It's Wednesday, September 19th, 2018. On today's show, A Simple Favor is a suburban noir. It stars Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively as unlikely mom friends whose lives take a lurching turn into mystery and suspense, and occasionally the oopsie jar. And then Sam Anderson is somehow both a deep thinker and one of the more suave dancing partners the English language now has. Sam has written a book and is here to both co-host the show, filling in for Julia, and to discuss Boomtown and his fascination with Oklahoma City, one of the great weirdo cities of the world. And finally, love it or hate it, but for 40 years, the New York Post has dominated all comers in this one regard, it's magnificently cheeky headlines. They are as much a part of New York City as yellow taxis and, I don't know, fill in the blank. Sam Anderson, fill in the blank. What's what's really New York? Pastrami. I, I could only come up with the stupidest cliches. <laughs> Pizza rat? Yeah, dirty pigeons. <laughs> Pizza rat. Uh, as only in New York, as only in New York. Actually, no one says that here, <laughs> except ironically. You have to put like seven uh, pairs of quotation marks around it when you say only in New York when you're in New York, right? As New York has seven pairs of quotation marks, maybe? There you go. (laughs) There we go. Okay, Sam Anderson is a contributing writer, a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, and of course, author of Boomtown, whose very long subtitle I will read out in full when we do this segment. But in the meantime, Sam. That will be the segment. Yeah, right. I say (laughs) Boomtown, colon, very long subtitle. (laughs) Welcome, uh, Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. There are so many intensifiers in front of friend of the program with you. I'm not even going to make up a silly you know, acronym, but uh, you are a very special friend of the program. It's great to have you here. And of course, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. I should say you're Slate's uh, film critic. Indeed. Which, yeah, which will be apposite to this first segment. A Simple Favor is a Connecticut noir that begins in the social ritual surrounding pick-up and drop-off at a suburban school. Stephanie is a mommy vlogger who's striving for perfection, drives other parents to distraction, uh, and drives them to snark on her goody-goody antics behind her back. Emily, meanwhile, is cool, remote, cynical, stylish, and a player in the New York fashion industry. The two strike up the unlikeliest of friendships, expedient at first, then buzzy and fun, and finally erotic and revelatory. The infatuation pulls mommy vlogger out of her neurotic loneliness, only to drop her into a series of double, triple, quadruple crosses. The movie stars Anna Kendrick as Stephanie and Blake Lively as Emily. Can't wait to talk about that performance. Let's uh, First, let's listen to a clip, though. You want to trade confessions? No, no, no. <laughs> Come on. What's the wildest thing you've ever done? Oh, I, no, I don't know. I shouldn't. You go first. Okay, um, a few months ago, Sean and I had his TA over for um, dinner and drinks and a threesome. Was Sean jealous of him? Did I say it was a him? It's very cool, sis. Very cool. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I don't mean to freak you out. Hello. 
I'm not freaked out, baby. You're freaked out. Okay. Because I'm not freaked out. I'm cool. I'm lazy fair. <laughs> lazy fair. <laughs> That's uh, great. I mean, uh, okay, Dan, I'm going to just throw you a softball to start it off. Is it Paul Feig or Paul Feig? Uh, oh, no, that's not a softball at all. I, I don't know Feig. how you say his name. Okay, Paul Feig. Yes, Paul Feig of of Spy, Bridesmaids, uh, exactly. Freaks and Geeks, co-creator fame. What else has he done? The Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters remake. Ghostbuster reboot. Okay, so but this one is interesting, right? It's been marketed as dark Paul Feig. It owes a debt to, I would say, I don't know, double indemnity and maybe Gone Girl. What do you, you think of this one? Gosh, I don't know. I wanted to love this so much more than I did. I mean, we were all just laughing at that clip, and that clip really shows the best of the movie, which is the first hour or so that the two women are becoming friends. Uh, it's and and that all has to do with the very different rhythms of their performances that you can hear beautifully in that in that little sample. I was thinking about the way Anna Kendrick delivers comic dialogue, and it struck me that. It's sort of like this expression about jazz behind the beat, you know, the idea of like <laughs> not delivering something at exactly her meaning sort of stutters out in a way. And she uses that kind of behind the beat stammering incredibly well in yes. this role. It's not anything we haven't seen Anna Kendrick do before, the kind of uh, uptight, goody-goody, who's a little bit, um, who's just sort of self-consciously trying to fit in. But she's just so perfectly suited for that that role here. And uh, and then we'll get to Blake Lively, who is kind of a revelation in this role, which is unfortunately too small. So now mm. we're going to get to the things that bothered me about this movie and disappointed me about it. I feel like, Stephen, you say it's dark feeg, but I feel like the dark stuff works worse than anything else in the mm-hmm. movie. As soon as it tries to be about noir and double crossing and anything other than a kind of playful mode, it can work when it's playful. But when it tries to actually go into dark places and dark parts of people's psychology, I felt that there mm. was something synthetic and inauthentic about it. And really, I kind of unfortunately felt like this this movie fell apart and I didn't really care about it by the last 20 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. But that said, it had so much, such great performances in such great fashion, really fun, splashy clothes and uh, great music, a lot of French pop, vintage French pop on the soundtrack and still offered all these these pleasures in spite of the disappointment. What did you guys think? Okay, so off to a strong start, then maybe falls apart a little bit into a synthetic mess. Sam, what do you think? I agree absolutely with that. Um yeah, the 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 quote unquote dark parts um, are they're kind of sprinkled in as garnish. You know, you're you're not getting any revelations about the human spirit in this film, and so it gets boring. That stuff it just seems kind of lurid. When the deepest darkest secrets of the Emily character come out, I just didn't believe any of them. Right. They all felt like filmmaking contrivances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 sort of time signature of the film speeds up so much as we move away from that opening part that you talked about, where it's the two women. I mean, I have to say, Anna Kendrick. A lot of the oxygen, the critical oxygen, is being burned up by um, Blake Lively's performance. But I think Anna Kendrick was so funny. She's in this hilarious. Film. She was so perfect, and in ways that um, you're right. She's she's kind of playing behind the beat. You could hear it in that clip we listened to. She's like swallow half swallowing the dialogue a little bit. But there's so many. There's such a like virtuoso modulation. Like she's playing so many different things at once in these lines. Like I kept just writing down lines of dialogue that just made me laugh out loud because of the way she said them. Like <laughs> one was just I just wrote in my notebook. Um, social media is so tricky, which she said at one point. I don't know if you remember that. I don't even remember the context, but the way Anna Kendrick delivered that line uh, and the sort of epic cluelessness and eagerness (laughs) with which she delivered it and the complete um, fish out of water sort of social situation, like uh, surrounded by all these kind of violent, violently cool people. uh, It was just so amazing. So, so I was delighted by her 
And then I guess we sh- we should talk about Blake Lively too. Steve, did you say that was a revelation? Uh, I did say it was a revelation. Yeah. Um, if you want a lateral to me, I I can uh, I can take it. Yeah, um, Steve, talk about here. Blake Lively. Um, I will in one second. I want to say that I agree with the consensus at the table, which is that the um, first hour or so of the movie is is it's bordering on superb. I mean, the a lot of the writing is really really sharp, and the performances are astounding. We should uh, say that the screenplay is not by Feig; it's by Jessica Scharzer. It's based on a on a novel, and I agree. Yes. The dialogue is is top notch in mm-hmm. those scenes. And uh, um, and what I would say is that Anna Kendrick is. I totally agree with Sam in a in a in a in a movie whose critical focus is going to be on Blake Lively. Anna Kendrick is just such a pro. I mean, she hits her mark. She delivers, um, but 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 in this virtuoso way that allows allows a very large presence that she's playing across to be large. Mm. So you have to make a little bit more of an effort to notice that Anna Kendrick, who we're so used to being good in everything, to being kind of a virtuoso and a likable virtuoso, is doing more of her virtuosic stuff because her character's not supposed to be all that likable. Um, and we'll get into this in a second. Her character has a dark backstory that's preposterous, but you know, <laughs> Anna Kendrick, you, you follow her anywhere. But getting to Blake Lively, I mean... I will go there. I think she's terrific in this movie. But beyond that, I mean, it puts her in the direct lineage of uh, Barbara Stanwyck and Veronica Lake, like, you know, the great noir actresses. I think she's that good in the movie. And as long as she's in the movie, with a couple of exceptions towards the end, when it becomes an overplotted mess, it's a it's a riveting film. Right? Her character is so unique. Her performance is so full as this person who's not just a sexy fashion plate who's ambitious and has a high power job and kind of acidic and intimidating, but who's like really deeply fucked up. But, but to get at that thing that makes fucked up and dark people that makes their vortex suck you into it as opposed to repel you. And it's, it's yes, the fact that she's the most stunningly beautiful woman imaginable by traditional standards. Absolutely. It's that, but it's something it's, it is, it's the acting. I mean, she gives, she gives a borderline great performance. The problem is now I liked the movie a little longer into the picture than you guys did. I thought when the mystery starts kicking in, um, and the, you know, the sort of central plot fact of the mystery happens. And then there's this sense of like, well, what exactly does it mean? There are a couple of chilling moments that are handled beautifully. And I'll just tip one without, spoiling it but a like closet full of clothes and like there's just that that chilling you know that that chill down your spine um and then it falls apart after that which i I found very very disappointing it becomes very busy very quick very expositional and also kind of slapstick Mm -hmm. uh and that didn't work for me at all yeah i did enjoy the i mean you get the kind of traditional noir twisty ending where you get like seven different rugs pulled out from under your feet um in quick succession which was fun um but yeah there's a lot of slapstick there's a lot of kind of false notes that get hit i feel like there's some one-liners that did not work for me at all um the tone of the movie got kind of tangled up uh with with all the other problems blake lively seems about four feet taller than anna kendrick and she seems somehow older than Anna Kendrick, which I imagine is not actually the case, but she has this like this world weariness that she carries around that makes her, that makes her feel 
much more mature and older. But I imagine that is not actually the case with these two actors. Actually, according to Google, Anna Kendrick is two years older than Blake Lively. Mm. I mean, they're roughly of the same generation. But I know exactly what you mean. I mean, she has to she has to communicate this world weariness and the sense that there is something behind her eyes that can't be plumbed. And uh, and she does that incredibly well. But again, I feel like it's the first hour of the movie. I mean, this is this is sort of the the problem that twisty noirs and horror movies and movies that depend on suspense twists are are heir to right is that they set your expectations really high as far as what mysterious mysterious thing lies behind the femme fatale's eyes and it's almost inevitably disappointing when you <laughs> find out oh it was just that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a, yeah, a, pl- it's true. a plate of cliche spaghetti um <laughs> It's also a Feig thing. I mean, the great strength of this film, right? Because that's like Bridesmaids. I came away thinking I could watch Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph talk to one another and improvise conversations for seven hours. And I kind of feel the same way about the relationship between these two women in this film. Yeah, I just wanted just more of them sitting on the couch drinking dry martinis and revealing each other's secrets. That mm-hmm, was what mm-hmm. the good stuff was all about. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, for... Our younger listeners, there was once a thing called the VHS machine and a, a a franchise video store called Blockbuster. And this would have been the perfect Blockbuster movie. You go and you just, you know, scoop it off the shelf, a Saturday night rental pleasure. And so the digital equivalent, I think, is the fate of this movie. It's just it's perfect for watching it um, at home with, you know, whatever, bowl of microwave popcorn. Dry martini. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, the movie is. Uh, God, I can never remember the fucking title. Of this I can't movie. either. That's another weird thing about this film. Is I think the title is is, is not good. <laughs> it's very generic. <laughs> it's very generic. Because it's it just harkens back to like simple plan. It just ten yeah, other yeah, titles yeah. occur to me before I get to a simple favor. But that single is what man. It's called. There you go. The clapping yep. hand. Yeah. Oh, I meant uh-huh. to make a joke about meatless meatballs because. <laughs> I mean, that's Anna Kendrick's character is this sort of overachiever, do-gooder, super mom um, who has this home vlog and she makes all these uh, amazing recipes and she brings to a school function her famous meatless meatballs. And uh, the metaphor is just kind of sitting right there. The movie is kind of a meatless meatball. <laughs> but it's it's delicious when you first pop it in your mouth. Yeah, right. <laughs> mm, all right. Uh, check it out. Tell us what you thought of it. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's move on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Before we go any further, Dana, I'm going to guess we have some business. What do you have? Thanks, Steve. Our only business today is to let our listeners know that today in Slate Plus, we will be talking about writing a book, which is something that Sam (laughs) just miraculously, heroically finished doing and that Steve and I are unheroically in the midst of doing. And uh, yeah, so we're just going to basically... reverse that. It's heroic to be still doing it. It's unheroic to have finished. (laughs) (laughs) We will thrash through that and other other concepts. It's basically just going to be a huge, long, whining misery fest, which I think our listeners are really going to be here for. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, the membership program at Slate, which is a great way to support the journalism we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. 
And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and many other wonderful benefits. So if you'd like to support the Slate Culture Gab Fest, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, back to the show. All right, Sam, as we said at the top of the show, for an introduction, one would need only to read the subtitle of the book. So here it is. It's called Boomtown, The Fantastical Saga of Oklahoma City. It's chaotic founding. It's apocalyptic weather. It's purloined basketball team and the dream of becoming a world-class metropolis. Is that SEO friendly? <laughs> Most assuredly not. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's SEO minimizing, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why don't we have you uh, read some of the wonderful from the wonderful prologue, if you would turn to page XV, please. This book is a history of Oklahoma City. That may strike you as unnecessary or unfortunate. If so, I would understand. In the larger economy of American attention, Oklahoma City's main job has always been to be ignored. When non-Oklahomans need to think about the place, we tend to fall back on cliches, teepees, wagon trains, the Dust Bowl, country music, college football, methamphetamine, radical anti-government politics. There is always, of course, the Broadway musical Oklahoma, with its soaring anthems of manifest destiny. Every five or ten or twenty years, the world is forced to pay serious attention to Oklahoma because something terrible has happened there. A tornado, or a bombing, or an economic collapse. But then we go back to ignoring it. This is natural. We can't pay attention to everything. You have to know how to look past a place. And Oklahoma City, in the grand scheme of things, is a very easy place to look past. Mm. So, Sam, I have so many questions to ask you, but the first one has to be, why? <laughs> um, I mean, it started very casually. It started as a lot of good things probably happened, just, just kind of by luck and then getting swept away by something. So the editor of the New York Times magazine one day was just kind of like, what are you going to write your next story about? I want something big and colorful and interesting cover story. I said, I don't know. He said... Um, well, you're a basketball fan, so how about this team from Oklahoma City? They had just been to the NBA Finals. They were a brand new team. They were formerly the Seattle Supersonics, and a group of Oklahoma City businessmen took them from Seattle and placed them in Oklahoma City for no great reason. And suddenly they became just the hottest team in all of sports, and they ended up in the finals. They had this incredible young core of players. So I said, yeah, they're fascinating. And he said, go out to Oklahoma City and see what's happening out there. So that's really how it started. Um, he gave me a great piece of advice, which was don't make this a normal sports story. Don't depend on quotes from the basketball players because you just have no idea what you're going to get. Make it your own thing. So mm -hmm. this is the result of that advice. I just, I'd been waiting my whole writing career for the feeling that I had to write a book about something. And this was that feeling. Was it on yeah. the very first trip to Oklahoma City mm -hmm. early in the trip that you started to have that? It was feeling? before the plane wheels hit the ground. Uh, I was reading a history of Oklahoma and I was reading about its prehistory and um, all of the different indigenous peoples that kind of washed over that area and set up in that area and intermingled. And then you had all these European settlers coming through. And, and I think the first thing that struck me was this idea that I ended up in the book calling middleness. Like that's the great quality of Oklahoma city is it is out there in the middle of everything. And so it looks to an outsider who might be prejudiced toward the coastal cities, like it's nothing interesting, but what is interesting about it is that middleness and the way that all of these things throughout history have come from 
crazy directions at crazy speeds and kind of crashed into one another and forced um, changes and adaptations and blended or or fought. And so that was those were the stories that really blew my mind that I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to try to convey to our listeners who haven't started it yet um, what it's like to read the book because it's it's playing with this theme. Correct me if I'm wrong, Sam, about kind of you know how something emerges out of chaos what a boom is in many different senses a boom town a boom economy the boom that takes us from nothing to something and then this sort of centripetal or coherent force that allows something to stay something and achieve equilibrium in existence and so the book is is kind of going back and forth between a somewhat cogent and followable narrative about the Oklahoma City Thunder, but around it are all these booming forces. Um, it, 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 it is both a th- book with a discernible through line and a kind of mimetic exploration of what chaos uh, and the chaos of being American and Oklahoman and from Oklahoma City feels like. Very nicely put. Thank you. that's exactly right it's right okay (laughs) correct at the heart of the book is almost like you know david halberstam's breaks of the game you know you know at the heart of it is the story of this basketball team and and let's talk a little bit about about specifically about james harden and james harden's beard (laughs) um yeah it is a lot about basketball and i think in the beginning because the story that I wrote for the Times Magazine was a lot more about basketball because that was the big, splashy, internationally famous thing that brought me out there. Um, so that was one of the tensions in putting this book together was, well, what percentage of it is going to be a basketball story? Um, and, you know, that that rattled around between maybe 30% and 60%, and I think ended up back down towards the 30%. But, but the idea was to tell this this basketball story um, as a kind of mythology of its own that held inside of it the themes we've been talking about and that played out for the people of Oklahoma City, especially over this one season uh, involving James Harden and, and Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, um, played out as this kind of uh, public, very public melodrama to which all the citizens were kind of enthralled all year long. And so it begins with this electrifying young player who the Thunder had coming off the bench. He was their sixth man, so he was their first substitute into the game, and that was this guy James Harden, who um, they had drafted uh, very high in the draft. People thought a little too high because maybe he wasn't talented enough to be kind of a featured player. And so he was playing this perfect role of supporting the other bigger stars. But as James Harden matured over the first couple of years of his career, and as he grew this enormous, giant, spectacular beard that became kind of a folk hero in Oklahoma City, his talent also grew and grew until he himself was on the brink of superstardom. And it, and it caused this kind of crisis for the team. Do we have room for this third superstar on the team does he even want to be here and so that's the crisis in which we start and then i don't i don't think it counts as spoiling although a lot of people who read this book are not basketball fans which i love because i i wrote it for people i I try to write about basketball like i would write about theater or film or art or whatever it's just an interesting thing that humans do um so a lot of people coming to it don't know how the basketball story ends up and and they're all it's very suspenseful what's going to happen with James Harden I haven't so. finished it and I don't know so don't tell me Okay I, so I will not spoil that um 
But yeah, that was the basketball thing. It was it just so perfectly mimicked all these other all these other stories and the history. All right, Sam, I made a, a mark on a part of the book that I wanted to read or wanted you to read when we talked about it, because I feel like this shows to people who are saying, why should I read a book about Oklahoma City and basketball if the, neither of those two things float my boat? The so, eternal question. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a passage that I feel like might help convince those readers um, as a non-basketball follower okay. myself. Thank you. And uh, it comes pretty close to the beginning of the book. It's the section called Microwave Popcorn. Mm. And uh, and this is one of the sections that has to deal with the Oklahoma land grab, which maybe we'll get into this in plus, but that actually overlaps with the book that I'm researching right now. There's a little bit of um, Oklahoma mm. land run business in it. Um, so to set this up, this is uh, sort of the eve of the, of the land grab. And at, I guess, noon the next day, there's mm-hmm. going to be a signal and everybody who's been camping outside of this territory called the unassigned lands mm-hmm. is going to just rush down and try to put down stakes to start their homestead. So microwave popcorn. When does a city begin? In most cases, we have no idea. We are forced to invent origin stories, wolves raising twins, eagles carrying snakes. The volcano god belches, civilization. We want the birth of a city to make sense, to be grand. We want it to lend its citizens meaning. But the reality is almost always far less dramatic. Cities creep into existence like algae. Lewis Mumford The city is a fact in nature, like a cave, a run of mackerel, or an ant heap. It's silly to talk about beginnings. No one is standing there firing a starting gun. There's no primordial boom. It happens in slow motion over generations by accident. Travelers stop by a river to rest. They have babies. They attract and seduce enemies. They trade with rivals. They congregate. And then one century, there are enough of them. The babies of 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 the babies babies to call citizens. And skipping ahead a bit, you say... But we'll never know what most cities were like during their very first hour, minute, or second. It doesn't really even make sense to ask. Cities are not microwave popcorn, unless you're talking, as we are, about Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if people ask you to read that passage a lot, but to me, microwave popcorn is a, is a really great condensation of uh, what you're trying to do with this book, which is have this, this, it's almost cinematic, to have this camera that's always changing positions, pulling out really far like that to sort of talk about history and historiography and how we understand the creation of, of places. And uh, and then sometimes taking it in really close to look at, you know, the guy adjusting the basketballs in the playing facility for the Thunder so that they all face exactly the same way. Um, any response to uh, to microwave popcorn and the idea of big versus small picture? Um, yeah, that was, that was one of the tensions because, as I said before, you know, I saw this as a way to tell the story of the universe essentially through a single place out in the Great Plains. Uh, and so I wanted to make these bigger sort of universal gestures. And and one of the bizarre things about Oklahoma City in a way that it's very, very American is that it was founded in one day, literally, um, essentially yesterday. I mean, it was, this was 1889, which is 11 years before the start of the 20th century. Mm. A city, a new city came into being in the center of America. Right. Um, Via a method so poorly thought out that after that, the U.S. government decided no more of these land runs. This yeah. is not how we're settling our territory anymore. Right. It, w- it was a disaster. It was like all the historians agree this was the worst way you could possibly start a city. And it went very badly, even <laughs> even by those uh, standards. So, um, yeah, it was a city formed in complete chaos at a crazy, like sort of outside the normal run of of American history. And because of that, I think it's this fascinating laboratory of kind of what America means and how America mm-hmm. works. 
Sam, I don't think we can exit the segment without asking you about uh, what many people most associate with Oklahoma City, which was the bombing of the uh, Murrah Federal Building, which in some ways I think kind of inaugurated the contemporary era of terrorism. And how did you decide to handle that? That was a hard one because it was so it was so powerful in people's image of Oklahoma City. It's kind of the only thing most people really know about Oklahoma City. And so in some ways, I mean in many ways, but but for that reason as a writer, I think, as a storyteller, I resented it a little bit. I resisted it a little bit um, because I felt like I want to tell the actual story of this place, which does not begin with a tragedy in 1995. Mm -hmm. It begins with this much deeper history starting at Pangea again. So I wanted to work up to that. And by the time the reader gets to the bombing, the bombing actually comes quite late in my book. I think it's like page 347 or something. And by the time you get there, I wanted the reader to know this city so deeply, to have a, a real affection for and understanding for the city and its characters that you kind of follow the characters through the day of the bombing who you've already met. Um, and so you experience the bombing from the perspective of someone in Oklahoma City, uh, which is the opposite of how you know, the rest of us really experienced it. I was out in California in high school when the bombing happened. Uh, and, you know, we experienced it as newspaper headlines and evening news segments, and that was it. So I really wanted to do this granular sort of on the ground um, and much because of that much sadder account of what happened that day. Sam, I know you recently went to Oklahoma City to do a signing of the book. I'm curious, both in relation to events like the bombing that are sensitive topics for the city and also just in general, the history of their town. How did Oklahomans receive the book and you? It it was pretty rapturous. It was kind of overwhelming. Um, I did uh, a, a book launch there at their biggest bookstore, Full Circle Books. And and I was actually introduced by this legendary weatherman, Gary England. Um, who you write about in the book. Who, who's a major character in the book. He introduced me. And um, there were many, many, many people. And, and I think, um, you know, this is a place that is, as I, in, as I said in that passage I read from the, from the preface, a place that's used to being ignored and um, that is incredibly self-conscious about how people think about it. And so for someone to have written a whole book, um, I think people were very excited. Um, the book is not this like boosterish love letter to Oklahoma City, although I, I did come to love the place. Um, but I think people were just hungry for to see their story told in like a larger way. So, I mean, it was wonderful. I think I was signing books for two and a half hours after that first event. And, um, you know, people were coming up and telling me my grandparents were in the land run. And uh, did you ever see this building over here? And, and here's the history of that. And so it was just, it was really wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, Sam, there's a, a kind of technical term from journalism that I'm sure you know, but you you wrote the shit out of this book. <laughs> Thank you, you. You wrote the shit out of this book, dude. You should be so proud. Uh, anyway, okay, it's Boomtown by Sam Anderson. Uh, if you're a fan of the show, you should be a fan of Sam Anderson. You should go buy the book. All right, moving on. 
The New York Post has been called the tabloid we love to hate. Uh, it was more or less a respectable paper until the late 70s when it was purchased by a then mostly unknown Australian would-be media baron named Rupert Murdoch, who turned it immediately into a British-style tabloid, which is to say he made it boorish, sleazy, sexy, shamey, the right-wing rag that it's been ever since. Uh, it has been a guilty pleasure, uh, even for the hipster left, for being so utterly, completely New York. Its most defining feature has been the quick, cheap, and dirty, and punning headline. Um, they may have recently topped themselves, though, with the news that John Lennon and Paul McCartney may once have engaged in a simultaneous act of onanism. They came up with Beat the Meatles, which is <laughs> 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 just fucking all. I mean, let's, you guys, it's just, Sam, I mean, I'll start with you, but it's just true. You can, you can hate to their very guts and your own very guts the, what that paper stands for and how it's just a right-wing manipulative piece of crap um, aimed at the lowest of the lowest brows. And yet those headlines, man, they get you every time. Yeah, I think there's there's something very um, American, I think, about the about the pun, about the style of pun that the that the New York Post has perfected. And it's it's so seductive, it's so charming, um, and yet it is kind of the front for this this poisonous uh, cartoonifying of the world, you know. And I think I think that's a very American thing, like that thin line between charm and manipulation. And mm. I think the post kind of sits right on that line and, and tap dances all day long. And it's that is one of the fun things about, yeah, being a New Yorker walking down the street is, you know, the post like the Times, when you pass the New York Times on a newsstand, there's a stack of them and you see the edge of it. But you're not like looking at the headlines to see, hmm, do I want to buy this thing or not? It's sort of like a book, you know, that'll be mm -hmm. that'll be a good read if I buy it. The, the New York Post is like displayed sort of upright, right? Where you're just it's mm -hmm. almost like an advertisement more than it is a newspaper. And so that front cover is what you're engaging with. And I don't know how many I mean, I've read hundreds, probably thousands. I've read thousands of New York Post covers in my time just walking around New York City. I've probably bought two issues of it over my time here. Oh, but the but but the it's the the way that it sort of um, it seals off the story that it's talking about, right? Like I didn't mm. even read any of I didn't read the Paul McCartney profile that talks about <laughs> masturbating with John Lennon. All I all I knew is I sat on the subway and someone had left that a copy of that post next to me, and I immediately whipped my phone out and took a. Sorry to use whipped in that context. <laughs> I immediately, immediately grabbed my phone and took a picture of the cover and sent it to my friends, and we all started laughing about it. Um, in a way, it's almost self-defeating because the headline accomplishes the complete work. Right, right. And you don't need to buy the paper. Right. Well, I just have to point out as well that the Daily News, in its attempt to top the post, is is equally good at, mm -hmm. at, at doing these headlines. I mean, and many, many times there's a kind of a competition or people foresee a competition when some particularly preposterous news event occurs. Who's going to nail it? Who's going right. to nail it with a headline, yeah, the Daily right. News or the Post? Yeah, I mean, that, but that was a... I mean, up until recently, the Post just ate their headline lunch. I mean, every single day, the Daily News couldn't compete with it. They tried for the irreverence, and it was just, you could see the beads of sweat on the foreheads of the, you know, headline writers at four <laughs> in the morning. And and the, I agree, like a year or so ago, maybe two years ago, the Daily News finally caught up. But um, Dana, it's, um, you know, it, it, Sam's absolutely right. Like the New York Gray Lady, the New York Times in a stack uh, you wouldn't really pass it and read a headline, 
the t- New York tabloids are hung like laundry, right? Um, uh, upright. And they're almost like works of public art or something. I mean, they're, they're, um, you know, they don't, these papers don't subs- uh, survive by subscriptions. Uh, it's a grab and go, uh, purchase. The headline has to work. Um, it's surely been integral to your visual experience as a New, York- New Yorker. Is it one that you appreciate or resent? Yeah, I appreciate it. I feel like as as long as I don't crack open the paper, I don't have to think about its politics. I can just enjoy the ridiculous wordplay of the headlines, which are sort of the best of tabloidism. I almost think of the headline writers who are, I'm sure are a group of all different people at all levels in, in these tabloids. But I almost think of the headline writers as a subculture within the paper that <laughs> might not have anything to do with the content, but is just enjoying the verbal felicity of trying to catch our eyes at the bodega. I mean, I feel like we should throw out some examples of, of, of some of the, mm, the classic yeah, yeah, yeah. headlines, right? A headless body found in topless bar. Is considered one of the all-time classics, right? By V. A. Musetto, the author who died and I died pretty recently, I believe, wrote that headline in 1983, and mm. it's still it's still sort of cited as the ultimate one of these these grabby, trashy headlines. There was a, a great example from the Iraq War in 2003. It was France and Germany were refusing to join the American attack on Iraq, and the New York Post, of course, needed a sufficiently uh, withering headline to insult France and Germany. And I think it was a 21-year-old copy boy who just came up with this as as I think the editor-in-chief was strolling around the room, probably shouting at everyone about how they had to nail this. This little copy boy said out loud, the immortal headline, Axis of Weasel. Uh, and, <laughs> and that's what they ran on the front page. I mean, there's something about puns, right? Maybe we should talk uh, about puns as well, because they're this perfect fusion of literary wit and adolescent kind of, uh, I don't know, they've always been looked down on, right? I remember when um, Nabokov came to the United States and started writing in these elite literary circles on the East Coast, and Edmund Wilson told him, you really must stop making puns, because Nabokov, of course, was just drunk on every piece of language you could ever be drunk on, and puns are a part of that. And uh, Edmund Wilson was just like, we don't do that here. It's not sophisticated. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about this. I don't know if we've done a specific uh, topic on puns before, but they have certainly come up in discussions of, you know, language policing, et cetera. And I just feel like it's ridiculously broad brush to say puns equals unsophisticated humor. I mean, sure, there are tons of bad puns out there because it's easy to make a bad pun, mm-hmm. but it's hard to make a good pun. I mean, beat the meatles. That is just incredible. <laughs> it's like a double layer pun. It refers to their earliest album that brought them to the U.S. Yeah. It's like and it's, it's making you meet this new part of their meat that we didn't know and about before. it's such before. A, just an elegant little swap. You just switch the, the first two letters. You yeah, know? It's, it's, it has that combination of like simplicity of execution, but but depth of meaning. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's just an amazing, amazing yeah. pun. And uh, and Shakespeare, of course, was madly in love with puns, as right. was Nabokov. Like, great writers are constantly dropping puns. And so the Joyce, idea that... Joyce, yeah, James Joyce. Right? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, the idea that because yeah. a headline plays on the double meaning of a word, it therefore is somehow a crude and low humor. Is just that's right. just doing a disservice to the English language, right? Uh, it, is, well, the, it is beat the needles. Uh, <laughs> 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 All right. Well, there. I think there are two two questions we have to address before we get out of here. One is uh, out of the segment. One is that um, isn't this in 
pointed contrast to the SEO-friendly headline, search engine-optimized headline, which just crams all possible search terms that people will put into Google on a subject into the headline in order to make it come up in searches in order to generate clicks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed it is, Steve. (laughs) <laughs> no it is it is um it does feel like a real a real throwback at this point because it is i think it is designed for pedestrians um exactly. it's yeah. a kind of like analog clickbait right for your eyes mm-hmm. uh and i don't know that that has economic value anymore mm. um I have a couple more examples I want to give. Wait, let me give a bad headline example, though, first, because there's a good one in in the prep doc. Yeah, in some of the the pieces we read about the history of headlines and headline writing in preparation for this segment, there was an example of a a really boring but completely SEO-optimized headline, Mm -hmm. and I just, I have to read it. Apple unveils iOS 8 and OS X Yosemite at developer conference. <laughs> like an, right. a headline that describes accurately what the piece is about, right? That contains all the buzzwords and catchphrases that you might Google if you were looking for information about mm-hmm. a developer conference and those phone models, but something that's just so colorless and character free. And so often now designed to be attached to articles that are not really expected to be read. What they want mm. is for it to be found and then shared and then clicked on and then ad advertising money to right. come in from it. So there's something mm-hmm. so kind of anti-literary. I mean, I hate to I hate to posit the New York Post as the kind of literary <laughs> saviors <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> of our culture. But there's like a great Anglo-Saxon simplicity to some of those just raunchy headlines. I mean, just a couple that pop into my mind before we sign off is one of the uh, Elliot Spitzer headlines. Of course, that scandal generated all kinds of, you know, somewhat right. questionably misogynistic, but let's admit hilarious headlines. And the one that was cited in our research and that I remember very clearly being plastered in the tabloids was Ho No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. then there's there's a sports one. I just have to cite this one from back in the 90s. And uh, this is so rare that I do a sports reference on the podcast, but this is in your honor, Sam. Oh, thanks. Uh, so there was this baseball player named Marquise Grissom. Do you remember oh, yeah, this guy? He yeah. played... I think at the time of this headline for the Atlanta Braves, uh-huh. and, uh, and there was some, there was some game where he had made some terrible unforced error and lost the game for the Braves and uh, embarrassed himself basically. And the, the headline about him the next day in one of the two tabloids, I don't remember which one, was Marquis de Sad, <laughs> <laughs> which I also remember just like bringing to my friend's attention. It was the pre-smartphone era, but just you know we had to join together at the at the newsstand and weep. That's Enjoy brilliant. over the Marquis de Sade. Can I throw out uh, my own all-time favorite? Um, I love to write punning headlines for my pieces, and they're often—I mean, they're almost always changed. But one that made it through back in the day when I wrote from New York Magazine—that is also a penis-related pun that I still am proud of to this day. Is I wrote a book review of a late Philip Roth novel, in which he writes a lot about the the failure of the character's penis and his manhood. And I was able somehow to smuggle onto my review of this book the headline, Schlong of Myself, (laughs) (laughs) which I I remain proud of. (laughs) Your finest moment. Yes, yes, you've now written a brilliant book, but will you ever top Schlong of Myself? Probably not. (laughs) Well, you know that as we're recording this, the Stormy Daniels memoir has leaked, Mm -hmm. uh, and there are descriptions of the genital <laughs> genitalia of the president comparing it to a, a mushroom like 
um, a video game character. So mm-hmm. any Rude. guesses what the post headline will be tomorrow if they take this on? I have two. Okay. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> okay. Uh, they could go with uh, Shroom with a View, right? <laughs> or, because I feel like Hamilton references are hot these days, too. So if you can do a pun and a Hamilton reference, the Shroom where it happens. <laughs> <laughs> right? The fact you came in with those ready, those could those could not have just blossomed. I wrote those on the subway. Oh my god, that's so good. (laughs) Oh my gosh, is there something about like fun guy and fungi? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) you guys are so easy. All right, the New York Post headlines. What were they? Were they uh, were they hilariously New York, um, or were they um, a decal on a on a on a brownfield? Come to facebook.com slash Gulterfest and, and settle that one for us. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Hey, I have two this week, so I will make them each brief. Um, the first one is going to sound like a log roll because it's a Slate podcast, but I'm so excited about this podcast existing, and I think our listeners will be too. So my first endorsement is Women in Charge, which is a new podcast hosted by our own Julia Turner about women in leadership positions. It's going to be, at least so far, a limited series, and only the first one is out so far. But in the first one, Julia sits down for 40 minutes or so with Aline Brosh McKenna, who is the showrunner of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and also the scriptwriter of Devil Wears Prada and has just generally been around in a script writing and showrunning capacity for a while now. She's also been a frequent guest on Script Notes, which is one of Julia's favorite podcasts. And uh, we've we've had a crossover podcast before with those guys. Anyway, if you like hearing Julia jabber on our show, you know a certain side of Julia, which is sort of like me and Steve, someone who comes shambling into the studio with their notes and does the best they can to talk about some things that we quickly learned about the previous week. But after that recording ends, Julia leaves and runs a magazine and makes all these executive decisions and is a boss lady in a way that I don't understand, but I'm fascinated by. And so this show seems like it's going to be a way to explore that world of what it is to be a boss lady. And there couldn't be a better person to run it than Julia. So my first one, then Women in Charge, the Slate podcast, which just which just started. You can find it on your podcast feed in Slate. And my second, Sam, has to do with your book. Um, it's a documentary about the flaming lips called The Fearless Freaks. Oh, yeah. Do you know this movie? One of the great... scenes in cinema history in that film yeah wait can you give a little hint of which one you're talking about sure it's the scene where where one of the great things about wayne Coyne, lead singer of the flaming lips is uh, until very late in his life even when the band was pretty successful he kept working at long john silvers and there's this incredible story uh he was a fry cook he wouldn't let them promote him he was what's called a third mate and he wouldn't let them promote him and uh there's such a great scene in that documentary where he describes to the filmmakers um, the time that that Long John Silvers was robbed at gunpoint. And he brings them to the Long John Silvers, which is now, I think, a Vietnamese restaurant and a family is family run and the kids are there. And But in Wayne Coyne just kind of cheerfully in his kooky way reenacts the whole stick up and is laying on the floor. And it's just it's just a beautiful piece of filmmaking. <laughs> Oh, man, as somebody whose first job in high school was a Long John Silver's cashier, (laughs) I'm heavily identified. (laughs) But yeah, there's so much to love about this documentary, The Fearless Freaks. It's from 2005. 
Uh, it's mainly about Wayne Coyne, who's the front man, lead singer for The Flaming Lips, and who grew up in Oklahoma City, still lives in Oklahoma City, loves Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. and spends a lot of the movie driving the filmmakers around the city and talking mm-hmm. about it. So I figured that it will at some point um, work its way into your book. In fact, He's when a- I first picked up the book, I immediately went to the index to see, but does he talk about Wayne Coyne? And then oh I saw, gosh. okay, there's at least 20 references to He's him. He's a so major, major I'm character good. in the book. Oh, great. Yeah. I can't wait to get yeah. to him. Uh, so, yes, if you don't know the music of The Flaming Lips, they're, the, they're a great concert band. And this is in part a concert documentary, and it shows some of the kind of avant-garde art rock stuff they do at their concerts, which involves really advanced body surfing, like body surfing in huge bubbles that mm-hmm. they create and pass over the audience. And they're just um, they're a really interactive, wonderful band. And he is just an absolutely unique character. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, The Fearless Freaks from 2005 documentary about the Flaming Lips. Mm. Um, Sam, what do you, I second yeah. that one. Yeah. Oh, love those guys. Uh, what do you have, Sam? So I was this last weekend back in Oregon, where I'm originally from, and I was at my favorite place on earth, which is Powell's City of Books, um, the world's greatest bookstore. And as happens at these places, I stumbled upon a book that I ended up picking up, which was just a wonderfully tattered old uh, first edition hardcover copy of uh, Annie Dillard's classic essay collection, Teaching a Stone to Talk, which I've read pieces of here and there over the years in anthologies, but I've never read the whole collection front to back. And I started reading it on the flight home and was just blown away. And it's one of she is one of those writers who every time I go back to her, she just reminds me why humans should do this thing called writing. Um, and, and the book starts with a very short essay five pages long um, and it's called living like weasels and this is kind of a classic of the essay form um, and it started the essay starts by describing just wild weasels I think it sorry, it starts with one of the great opening sentences for a book of all time which is just a weasel is wild period <laughs> and then she gets into some kind of naturalistic facts about weasels um, and one of which is that they have they they're very tenacious and they have incredibly strong jaws and they'll lock on to their prey and they just won't let go and she tells a story of a guy who once shot an eagle out of the sky and found in the dead eagle's neck embedded the skull of a weasel still clamped down on the on the eagle's neck anyway in the space of these five pages it kind of swells to this ecstatic religious ending um and i thought this would just be the perfect thing to read at at the right kind of wedding or the right kind of funeral. It's just so beautiful. And so I wanted to read just a few paragraphs if I could, um, not too long. But uh, so she she describes this encounter with a weasel where they, they just startle one another out in the wilderness. She's sitting on a log and they look at each other and they have this moment of mind melding for like 30 seconds or something. And then the weasel scampers off and that's it. But into that, she reads all this sort of emotion and revelation. So pretend that we're at a wedding of very literary people and um, the, the wind is blowing and we're at the seaside or something and I would stand up and read this because this is after the weasel scampers away. I missed my chance. I should have gone for the throat. I should have lunged for that streak of white under the weasel's chin and held on, held on through mud and into the wild rose, held on for a dearer life. Could two live that way? Could two live under the wild rose and explore by the pond so that the smooth mind of each is as everywhere present to the other and as received and as unchallenged 
as falling snow? We could, you know. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you, up aloft even, till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds, and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. Cue the violins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I worship Annie Dillard. I haven't read her in so very, very long. And then there was a period where I think I was a little embarrassed at my youthful passion for her because no she's way. so yeah. intense. So you know? unapologetically. And, and many people, I think, perceive her as an overwrought or kind of humorless writer. I find oh her I find her funny and brilliant and wise and basically perfect. Yeah. Um, but it's great to be to be reminded of that book. This is the same book that has the, uh, the Eclipse essay yeah. in it, right? That essay is the shiz oh yeah oh wow now there's a small problem which is that my endorsement requires reading in hushed and reverent tones of of reading today (laughs) i just is the it's the what it is right we're gonna have to put up with it because i don't have i don't have a backup but okay i have a question for the panel every american should at some point in his or her life in their lives read leaves of grass by walt whitman Schlong of myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty equivocal. Yeah. Dana, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my mind was just going to the fact that that's the book that Bill Clinton gave Monica Lewinsky, oh, as right. I just learned on Slow the Burn. Slow Burn podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and also, to make it that really painful, it was the same book he had given to Hillary Rodham when he was oh, courting Jesus. her 20 years before. All right. Well, eyes back on the prize I'm endorsing here. And then, okay, so the second question, follow-up question, every, every self-respecting American... Um, at some point in their lives should read uh, copious, copious amounts of Emily Dickinson. Oh. At every point in their lives. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay, so now here's the point. Third question. Should every American also read uh, Robert Frost? Before I knew you, Stephen Metcalf, I probably would have mm, said, yeah, read him in high school, then you're right, done. Maybe not, yeah, okay. No, you've so, convinced me of the importance of Frost. Oh, of and course. you're teaching him yeah. right now, right? I just, yeah, exactly. And so I just, I, this week I'm teaching North of Boston, which I regard as like one of a handful of the greatest works of art of the 20th century. And it, part of the problem with, okay, so the first problem with Frost, of course, is that people know him by his greatest hits. He himself turned himself into a kind of caricature, a self-caricature, um, the associations with that caricature are so overwhelming to the not only the not only to the dark and equivocal poetry, but to the very dark and equivocal human being who who created it. Um, but the other problem is that is that he was he lived for a very long time and um, and he was prolific and he was very good through about six volumes of poetry, which is a lot. He actually won the Pulitzer four times, and he. Um, uh, uh, but 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 North of Boston is his second book is a stone 
masterpiece and people ought to read it and they won't believe what they find there. I mean, these long poems of people speaking to one another uh, in these really dark, foreboding tones. Uh, I just have to read you a part of Death of the Hired Man. Um, so essentially the scene is a husband and wife in a farmhouse and the hired man that they've worked with for years has come back and the wife wants to greet him with sympathy um, and the husband, his heart is cold. Part of the moon was falling down the west, dragging the whole sky with it to the hills. Its light poured softly in her lap. She saw it and spread her apron to it. She put out her hand among the harp-like harp morning glory strings taut with the dew from garden bed to eaves, as if she played unheard some tenderness that wrought on him beside her in the night. Warren, she said, he has come home to die. You needn't be afraid he'll leave you this time. Home, he mocked gently. Yes, what else but home? It all depends on what you mean by home. Of course he's nothing to us anymore than was the hound that came a stranger to us out of the woods, worn out upon the trail. The husband replies, home is the place where, when you have to go there, they have to take you in. And she replies, I should have called it something you somehow haven't to deserve. Anyway, it's just an astonishing poem. It's novelistic. It's almost almost a playlet. And it's, it's, it's un... I mean, this, this poem was published in... I'm going to take a guess. I think North of Boston was 1914 or 15. It's 100 and plus years old. These voices, they have not aged one minute. Um, and there's just something about like dark rural places. And um, they're, they're, I mean, it's it's filled with, I mean, after apple picking is in there, uh, Mending a Wall is the first poem in it. There are poems that you kind of know already, whatever. But I'm telling you, this is a book everyone should read. I really believe that. All right. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. And again, you know, just mad congrats for the book. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. And we have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Sam Anderson, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you. We'll see you next week.